Welcome, everybody, to the second episode of Mission Control with Aiden Resnick. I'm Michael Mitchell, and we're coming to you on Monday, July 10th. Uh, we're going to be doing a few things today. We'll be recapping the first two draft picks the Astros made last night under Dana Brown. Talk a little bit about what surprised us, what we think about um, his drafting philosophy and the direction he's going based on those picks. Obviously, we're not experts on... Um, you know, whether those are going to be quote unquote good picks or not, but just what we can learn from, from what was done there, tell you a little about those players. Uh, we'll start by recapping the Seattle series a bit and where the team is going into the break. And then we'll have Evan Drellick, author of Winning Fixes Everything, um, the book that came out earlier this year about the sort of the Lunau years. It's not just about the scandal. In fact, it's very little about the trash can scandal, um, but he will join us for an interview later in the show. So let's start Mission Control right now. Uh, Aiden, why don't you give us your sense of the Seattle series? Obviously, we lost three out of four. Um, Seattle pitched their top four pitchers, or, I mean, their whole rotation with Miller, who didn't throw, is a very good rotation right now, and they're healthy. Um, and, you know, we were a little banged up. We did throw for Amber, but the rest of it was kind of stitched together. Uh, Hunter Brown is scuffling right now. Uh, so what is your sense of it? What do you take away from our series against Seattle? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. It's pretty discouraging, if I'm being honest. Um, more than anything, because I don't think people realize that Seattle's kind of in the rearview mirror. Um, and I mean that in as terrifying a way as can be. Uh, Seattle is, Fangraphs gives Seattle a about a 10% chance to win the division, um, which may not seem like a lot, but I think people are well aware of how fast 10% can become 30%, which can suddenly become 50%. And um, I think the beauty of the Astros division race so far was that they always, they always had this you know idea that Texas is a team that's new to this and they had a really great first half, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to just cruise the rest of the year. Teams face adversity. You know, that we saw them face adversity when they lost Jacob deGrom. Um, and now we're starting to realize that maybe their lineup isn't actually made of all 800 OPS guys. Maybe some of the guys were overperforming. Maybe some of the pitchers were overperforming. In Seattle, they have five starting pitchers, and that's not even counting Robbie Wright, who's out for the season. Five starting pitchers who are legitimate threats, no matter the lineup you throw at them. No interest in seeing any of them in a postseason game. And we saw it this weekend that that's what happens when you face really, really good pitching and you're missing arguably your two best hitters. In the last 17 innings, the Astros scored two runs, and we can laugh about how those two runs were scored. I don't think anybody expected those to come on Mark two Martin Maldonado solo home runs, but you know, I think it underscores what the the rest of the offense did. And I, I, hey, I think let's it's not run from this year. Aiden, we can't run from it. Martin Maldonado is proving once again to be the heart and the soul of uh, of this team. You know, he's obviously he's got that OPS plus up to about what fifty six now, fifty five, fifty six. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I, I I think you know Seattle's rotation. If you want to know how a team can go from being five hundred to winning a division potentially, right, to passing Houston and Arlington. Their number five starter, if you were to line them up, their number five starter is probably Brian Wu. He's really good. 
You know, he is a legitimate prospect. His fastball plays up. And, you know, he would be at worst the number three starter in our rotation right now, based on how everybody's performing this year, arguably the number two. And he's the worst guy they put out there. Um, you can make up ground quickly, as we saw this weekend, when you are either getting the better of or are on even footing in almost every single pitching matchup. They only need a little bit from, you know, Eugenio Suarez to pick it up a little bit in the middle of that lineup. And Cal Raleigh to get back to how he was hitting earlier in the year and last year. And all of a sudden, you look at a team that could go 12-2 and in a 14-game stretch in some of the softer parts of their schedule. So I am worried about Seattle. I know you said Fangraphs has them at 10%. Um, you look at the way Anaheim's collapsing. You look at Arlington and some of the overperformance in that lineup. Um, we're very fortunate we got the third game there because it, had that been a sweep and you look at Seattle only being two and a half or three games behind us instead of five, um, that would have been definitely a case of wondering if Seattle is more of a threat than Arlington, which is a little much, but um, I would bet that they finish within a couple games of Arlington at worst. Uh, so... Agree with that. The other thing I take out of the series, um, you know, you look at the pitching that we put out there. Um, the Hunter Brown situation is now officially concerning because the workload is up. You know, we talk about workload on Javier, workload on the relievers, all of that stuff matters. But my guess is they're really going to back off Hunter Brown in a way they won't back off the relievers or Christian Javier. Like, I, I would expect him to run into some either innings limits or efforts to skip his turn in the rotation a bit. And they don't really have anyone to put in if they skip him. I mean, the trade market is going to have to save them in terms of eating innings, just the number of innings that are left to pitch in this season. Uh, the other thing I would say about the Seattle series, things get easier for us now. You know, Arlington struggled out uh, against the Nationals. And lost two out of three this weekend. So you have to look at it and say, their schedule's brutal. They've got the Rays, the Dodgers, the I believe the Guardians, and then us as their first four opponents coming out of the break. So it's Guardians, Rays, Dodgers, Astros. We have a much softer schedule. Um, you know, Anaheim is kind of eh, but then Oakland and, and some easier opponents early there's a reasonable chance that we are even or plus one ahead of Arlington in two weeks. And at that point, the starting pitching is going to need reinforcement because our August schedule is one of the three or four hardest in the league, which of course comes right at the deadline and going forward from there. So to me, the whole spotlight now is can we acquire good impact innings or are we going to try to sort of stitch it together with Bialak and Blanco and, you know, JP France having to win games as the third or fourth starter the rest of the way when his underlying metrics suggest he's more of a number five. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you feel the urgency to add starting pitching here with how difficult the August schedule is going to be? Yeah. I mean, I guess to your first point about Hunter Brand, I know he had a pretty bad start against Seattle just completely imploded in the fourth inning and Phil Maton didn't necessarily help, but I'm, I couldn't be really less concerned about Hunter Brown. If I'm being honest, Hunter Brown had a 
has a 349 BABIP in the first half, which ranks second in baseball. And when you have a 55% ground ball, right, you're every once in a while will be susceptible to high BABIPs, but that doesn't necessarily actually mean that that'll last. Um, and so I do not expect that to continue. It's, it's been a product of bad luck. And the other part of it is, you know, people like to harp on Martin Maldonado for, you know, suddenly increasing Hunter Brown's home run rate. I don't, I don't think there's very much validity there, if I'm being completely honest. I, I think, and, you know, we'll you see that when you look at home run per five. Uh, the fly ball ratio. Hunter Brown's at 17%, which ranks fourth in baseball. So immediately two indicators of luck right there are very positive about or optimistic about the the future regarding Hunter Brown. Now there are a few other things like he's stranded runners at a relatively uh, unsustainable rate. So will that last? Probably not. So uh, for every degree of bad luck. You could argue there's some degree of good luck that Hunter Brown's gotten, but overall it's more bad luck than good luck. And most of his ERA uh, indicators will agree with that. Hunter Brown, even though he has a 412 ERA, uh, 379X ERA, 334FIP, and 3XFIP. Um, and with the innings and he's produced, that's a really valuable baseball player. So I'm not overly concerned that he's going to implode in terms of you know ongoing performance i think what i was mentioning is the concern is are they going to allow him to throw 35 innings a month down the stretch here or are they going to start stretching him out a little bit between starts and basically just requiring more innings to be picked up by a depth that we don't have uh, i certainly don't think he's you know incapable of being competent when he's out there i think you did a great job pointing out the metrics um, that show positive regression is likely. But do you think they're going to just throw him like any other starter here and give him six innings every fifth or sixth day? I w- I'd like to say no, but it's kind of hard to offer up alternatives given the current state of the Astros rotation. Um, I, I would say that I do expect them to ch- acquire at least one starting pitcher. Part of me wonders, you know, I think there are two ways they could acquire a starting pitcher, and I'd almost say that they should do both because multiple starting pitchers might be necessary where, you know, they can give like a Corey Lee, they can give one of their depth outfielders either in the major leagues or the minor leagues for a rental pitcher. Um, But then they could also look at something like like the Yankees and the Cardinals did last year where they traded Harrison Bader for Jordan Montgomery, two guys with some control, two relatively young guys, but two guys who came at at a position of – you know, surplus for those teams and they rather swap them out for players of need. And it's honestly kind of looking like a win-win trade so far. I think maybe I'd take Bader a bit long-term, but Jordan Montgomery's had a very solid first half and the Cardinals desperately need pitching and don't necessarily need outfield production. So in that regard, I'd say why not look to shop a Mauricio Dubon Chaz McCormick, someone with team control, even though I love Chaz McCormick. If you can get a young pitcher with team control in return for him, I'm generally all for it. So um, I think they, they should really explore all avenues on how to conserve innings. I also think there's some strategy to how you line up your rotation, how you maximize off days. You know, I, I know off days are pretty rare in uh, the long run in a 162-game season, so you can never really bank on them to give pitchers rest. But you know, there are a few cases where you can afford to give Brandon Belak a start if it's at home against the Rockies. You can afford to, you know, throw Ronel Blanco against a team that you expect to beat with with no matter who you throw. 
um, you can say you almost save the the Frambers for and the Hunter Browns for the you know the Texas games, the, the Seattle games, I guess now, um, and you know any Tampa, Baltimore teams that you feel like are actually real competitors because. Yeah, those are games where you want your big guys showing up, and I don't think any of us feel comfortable with a you know, six XERA Brandon Belak showing up to start one of those games. But Belak's more than capable of pitching against bad teams. You'd almost you know, see it as a quadruple A type of pitcher, and yeah, I would align it that way. And also, just quickly to touch on aligning rotation, I think the Astros can make a really big difference on the second half of the season, depending on how they align their rotation at the All Star break. I think the two musts are you want uh, Framber lined up to start a Texas game. I don't think that's a question even to, in any way. And I also think you want to make sure that you're not here in Coors Field. One, because I think another bad start could have you know, psychological effects that neither you or I are too familiar with, but probably would want to stay away from. And two, just generally, you know, he's a flat fastball pitcher, or at least supposed to be a flat fastball pitcher, but regardless, very susceptible to fly balls, which I don't expect to, to play well. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. You actually saw the Rockies pick Chase Dolander yesterday, who very very good pitcher, but does not seem to fit the profile of someone who is you know deemed to to succeed in uh, in Coors Field. So, as much as I'm you know, can be optimistic about what Javier can do in the second half, I don't think starting him in Coors is the right uh, is the right way to approach that. And then third, with Javier, you just very quickly here, I, I want... oh sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I just think you, you can align your rotation so that, you know, you have six guys, the the three through six or four through six being France, Bilac, and Blanco, so that they're not facing these juggernauts, but rather they're facing these teams that they are capable of beating. And then you save Hunter Brown innings and come August 1st, you have two new shiny starters to use, and then you don't necessarily have to do that. So. I'd love them to trade for a starter right now, but I also understand that the price goes down over time and these games aren't necessarily must wins, but I, I am concerned about innings for pretty much any every pitcher in the rotation except Fromber, which is a little surprising also because he's thrown the most innings in that rotation. Um, so trading for one or two starters is the way to go. I just hope they do it sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree with that. And I just wanted to add there on Javier a minute ago, it's almost a good thing that they kept him off the injured list when they had an opportunity to put him on the IL and get someone up here for the last week, because had they done that, he would be lined up to come back against the Rockies and he would not be available to be activated in this first series against the angels out of the break. So the fact that he stayed on the active roster, hopefully he pitches Saturday or Sunday um, in Anaheim. Uh, we'll see. Obviously they haven't announced that yet. Um, I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about the draft last night. I'm sure that's front of mind for a lot of people. Um, two picks at 28th. Uh, the Astros took shortstop for now. We'll see. But shortstop for now, Bryce Matthews from Nebraska, uh, originally a Houston area kid. And then uh, with the final pick of the second round at 61, they took uh, Alonzo Treadwell, pitcher out of UCLA. Um Initially here, we talked about Dana Brown. I just want to back up a little bit, and I'll get your thoughts on both of those picks. I have my own. Um, but if you back up a little bit, Dana came in with a lot of hype, both externally, and he wasn't shy about hyping himself up, and Jim Crane did as well. He knows the draft. He's here to rebuild the system. Crane even said, we don't want to have to give out these $30 million a year contracts 
to fill every hole on the roster. We've got to develop our own guys. Obviously, there's some financial reasons that Jim Crane does not want to become, you know, the Blue Jays even, let alone the Mets or the Dodgers with playing in free agency to fill holes. But Dana agreed, right? Dana said very clearly, you know, I know the draft. I have to nail the draft. So he's not running from it. If you look at his history, and I'm not here to throw cold water on Dana Brown, who I think is a good scout and a good analyst, um, he gets a lot of credit for a few picks that have happened under him. Most recently, the 2019 Braves draft, where he got Spencer Strider and Michael Harris and, to a lesser extent, Vaughn Grissom. He gets a tremendous amount of credit for that first class that came in um, six months after he was hired in 2019. If you look back through his entire history of drafting and you start in Washington, or I guess in Montreal, wearing the Expos hat in honor of Dana's first drafts, um, there are misses. There are big misses and there are high misses. And I just want to put it in context. In 2002, 2002, they took out of Cypress Falls High School right here in Houston, or Cy Fair up, up the road, Clint Everts, a right-handed pitcher with the fifth overall pick, never made the majors, you know, just threw his arm out, complete bust, fifth overall pick. 2003, Chad Cordero, a closer, out of baseball by age 28 was only drafted as a reliever. They 20th overall pick had absolutely no starting pitcher projection to him. In fact, he was up in their bullpen that season. Two months after he was drafted, he was in the majors for the Expos, and they drafted him so he'd move quickly. He had one all-star season, um, and by his third full season in the league, lost his closer job, was out of baseball two years later. Okay, Bill Bray, another reliever, 13th overall in 2004, hits on Ryan Zimmerman with the fourth overall pick out of the University of Virginia. Another fast mover was up the same season. Um, that's a hit. Chris Marrero, 15th overall in 2006, is a miss. Colton Williams, 22nd overall in 2006, high school right-handed pitcher, never makes the majors. 2007, Josh Smoker. Lefty out of high school, never makes the majors. Excuse me, briefly makes the majors. Um, Michael Burgess, outfielder out of Hillsborough High School in Tampa, where Kyle Tucker's from. Um, 2007, sandwich round outfielder, never makes the majors. Takes Aaron Crow, ninth overall in 2008. Ninth overall pick in 2008. Brief career as a reliever. Doesn't stick around in baseball. You know, low war for his career. So, and then Strasburg first overall in 2009 with his last pick before he went to Toronto as a special advisor. Strasburg, obviously, every single person in baseball said he's the best pitching prospect in 50 years and all this stuff at the time. There was no debate. It was the Strasburg sweepstakes the year before to see who would have that pick. But nonetheless, good career for Strasburg. So I just want to point out there that, you know, and by the way, a couple of his more recent picks with the Braves 2000, 2001, first-round picks, um, not doing particularly well in the minors, not top 100 prospects. So, you know, every I don't think Dana Brown is bad at drafting. I don't want that to be the takeaway. I think he deserves credit. He found Ian Desmond in later rounds when he was with the Nationals. Um, you have to be honest, though, that there's no magic to his drafting. He's not 
you know, the guy who solved the draft, and that's why we brought him in. So with that said, last night picks Bryce Matthews earlier than projected, right? Everybody had him, and Keith Law had him 57th on his board. Almost all the big boards had him somewhere between 40 and 65. You know, some scouts had him as a third rounder. Some had him as a second rounder. That doesn't matter. If Dana Brown felt like, and this is my opinion. I'm going to let you chime in here in a second. If Dana Brown felt like this is best player available, this is a guy who we expect to be an impact bat in the middle infield, stay at shortstop or go to second base. Now there's some questions with the arm strength, but he's an elite athlete. He's got exit velocities through the roof. Okay, this is regularly to his pull side. He's 110, 112 off the bat, 21 home runs uh, for Nebraska last year. If they believe in him, I don't care that he's 55th. If they think they've got an impact middle infielder, Altuve's a free agent in a year and a half. Bregman's a free agent in a year and a half. You don't know what's going to happen. You take best player available. You plug him in. If you have to move him to center field, there'll certainly be room in the outfield for him to play if he's an impact bat. I have no issue with picking whoever you think is best player available. I look at it like the way you look at an NFL team drafting a franchise quarterback. If you think this is the guy who's going to be your Pro Bowl quarterback for the next 15 years, it can be an overdraft. It doesn't matter because if you hit it, you hit it. And in the baseball draft, the probability of hitting at 28 is not that high. You know, we, we should fall out of love with the draft boards a little bit because, you know, the, the future war out of 28th overall is not much. So ultimately, if they got a guy they believe in, Dana's out on that limb saying, this is my guy. And he says, I'm the guy who nails the draft. Great. Have him. And then Dana's sort of on the hook here for... I see players better than other people see players. So I'm okay with the pick just because I'm deferring to the expertise of a stated draft guru. And there are some good metrics under the hood um, on Matthews. No question from a metrics point of view, there's a lot to like. What do you think of the draft last night, Aiden? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you gave a pretty good rundown of Dana's drafting history. You give him credit for the good picks, but you don't necessarily forget about the picks, the extensive first round picks who did not pan out in the slightest, and there often very little, seemed to be very little reasoning behind them. Um, another guy I'd probably want to point out quickly, the Braves in 2020 drafted Jared Schuster out of Wake Forest, a, um, a left-handed pitcher who throws 90, 91 miles per hour. His changeup is 80 mile per hour with a dangerously similar shape to its fastball. So in other words, a BP fastball. It's like some of the worst pitch data you'll see and someone who's not had success in the major leagues. And I think anybody who has seen his pitch data would probably understand that. Now, the reason I bring that up is Dana, for example, in this seems in what seems to be an interview with Chandler or Chandler put it in an article yesterday says the Astros rely heavily on TrackMan data and other analytics in their scouting process, something Brown lauded and wants to continue. So you get that whole spiel. And I think a lot of, Baseball people do. Yeah, we'll listen to the analytics. Yeah, we'll listen to the data. Yeah, we consider everything. We like the holistic approach. You get that probably out of all 30 organizations. But there's a difference between listening to TrackMan and actually using it as a basis to make decisions off of rather than just a reference. And it does seem that if you look at a guy, maybe his stuff changed. I'm not an expert in what Jared Schuster did in college, but maybe if you looked at his stuff profile, you stay away and you say, you know what, even though he had success, even though he was at a good program and in a tough conference and he was still able to be successful, 
this is not something that'll translate well at the big league level. And we're starting to see that maybe TrackMan would have been onto something here. So not to say any absolutes, but you can you contrast that with the Astros approach. I mean, the Astros didn't even necessarily have TrackMan throughout, you know, while they were building or throughout their entire dynasty building process. But and I think there was actually some points in Evan's book where he talks about how the Astros would not, maybe not have drafted Mark Appel had they had all the information they would have liked on him. So some incomplete information there, but the Astros did great with their first round picks. And again, a lot of them were high picks. Correa wasn't obvious though. And Buxton would have been a fine pick injuries aside. I think the talent is clear and he's panned out baseball wise. Um, but, and sure, Mark Appel, was a bust, but Brady Aiken, they got Alex Bregman out of. I think part of the pick was understanding maybe some sort of pivot route if the medical didn't go well, or at least it was a you know an added benefit. Kyle Tucker was a great pick. I mean, you look at the 2015 first round of the draft, and you'll see, you look at the top 20, and you'll see almost 18 no-names, and then Alex Bregman and Kyle Tucker. That's obviously an exaggeration, but those were the two best players in the first round of the draft, um, and Jeff Luno secured both of them. Now, you look at some later picks in the that, that Jeff Luno had or later first round picks, first round picks in later years, I guess is a better way to put it. And sure the Astros did not nail those picks, but they got value out of them. I mean a few of them were traded for Zach Greinke. Um you know and Daz Cameron who was also in that 2015 draft traded for Justin Verlander. So they made value to they got value out of them to some extent. And then you look at what the Orioles once Sig and uh, Sig Mydell and Michael Elias took over, two guys very close in Jeff's inner circle. And the Orioles now have eight top 100 prospects, seven of which were drafted by Sig and Mike, which is a ridiculous farm. And the other, and that's not even accounting for Adley Rushman and Gunnar Henderson. And Rushman, sure, an obvious pick, but Gunnar Henderson in the second round, any, anything but that. So, um, Huge credit to what they have done in Baltimore, even with a great pick last night with Bradfield. Um, and so it's hard to look at what the Astros sort of let go and say, yeah, I feel 100% confident in the draft. That said, I'm really happy with what Dana Brown did yesterday. And, you know, I think the actions speak louder than words. And he nailed yesterday, uh, to say the least. I think Bryce Matthews, you know, we could talk a little bit about who he is as a player, but I think it's probably even more fair to talk about, you know, what the pick actually means for the Astros. But just quickly, I think he sort of projects as, you know, like a Jazz Chisholm or a Jeremy Pena type of guy, a middle infielder who maybe could move to the outfield at some point, you know, maybe center field, um, who has you know, some power, some speed, clear athleticism, maybe some questionable swing decisions, but, you know, nothing that's not trainable. I think he produced well in a tough baseball conference. This is a really good player. Alonzo Treadwell, 6'8", pitcher who only throws 92, I believe, sits 92, 93, um, but great command. I, I think his strikeout-to-walk ratio was some ridiculous, like, 113 to 18 or something something along those lines, who, you know, I don't even know if it's necessarily possible, especially at UCLA against top opponents, but I'll credit to him. You know, but six eight throwing ninety two, probably the Astros probably believe that there's some more velo in the tank and that he's not a finished prospect. Maybe that was a bit more of a scouting um, pick. You know, I, I throughout the draft, I was checking. There's a Twitter account uh, called I think Data underscore Prospects, a, a data driven a, a account to generally grade and assess and project uh, draft prospects. And you know, following their big board, they had Bryce Matthews eight overall, um, which is 
know, pretty, pretty incredible to say the least that the Astros were able to get someone that at 28th. And they were much lower on Alonzo, Alonzo Treadwell at 93. Um, but again, I think it might speak to the projectability and maybe this is the type of pick where you know, the Astros who have been clear, you know, pioneers almost in the pitching development sphere are able to get something out of him that, you know, a lot of teams wouldn't be. So you're okay taking a guy who most people have lower on a generic big board because the Astros big board should be tailored to what the Astros do best. And that seems to be developing pitchers. And when you have a six, eight pitcher who you know throws 92, which isn't, which isn't nothing. It might not be enough to succeed, but you know, coming out of the draft isn't nothing. Yeah. You got to wonder, you know, what's the upside for this guy. It's a little exciting in that regard. So um, overall, very pleased with the picks. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what the picks actually mean going forward. You know, what drafting a college middle infielder means for, what their future is in the middle infield, maybe at third base or in center field, depending on where they actually want to slot him. Um, but overall, very pleased. Yeah, well, what I like about the the Matthews pick is, I said this on Twitter last night, when you have a guy who has his defensive tools, because he's clearly an elite athlete who's going to play somewhere up the middle, short, second, or center, you kind of end up with this high floor, high ceiling prospect, which is what you want, right? You want a guy who, if the holes in the swing persist, if he becomes a low average guy who strikes out 160, 170 times a year, he's still got power, he's still got speed, he still has that you know, positive positional adjustment from being up the middle. And so his floor is pretty high. And of course, it doesn't take much if he can get his, you know, bat-to-ball skills to a place where he's getting on base 33 34% of the time, um, you know, through a mix of contact. And he had a phenomenal eye at Nebraska. I mean, his walk rate is among the higher walk rates in the entire conference. Um, so he's clearly not someone who, even if there's holes and perhaps some of the swing decisions aren't great, he's willing to get deep into counts um, and take his walks, which is really not what these Astros hitters have been doing the last couple of years, but he's getting deep into counts regularly. So I love the high floor that comes with that profile. Um, and then of course the high ceiling, because you've got an elite athlete up the middle with 112 exit velos and that, that ceiling establishes itself. So, you know, I agree on paper. It certainly looks like a guy who, like I said, whether he's ranked 55th because of concerns that scouts have about the holes in the swing Dana has every right to come in here and say, I believe in this guy and our metrics believe in this guy and I'm putting myself on the line. I almost would have been more concerned in a way if Dana had gone out and just drafted a bunch of safe, highly productive, big college pitchers. Um, you know, I was thinking of Ty Floyd as a guy who was linked to us a lot, where if you look at him on paper, um, you know, Ty Floyd is not an elite prospect and I'm, I don't have the data prospects board up right now, but he was not a top 30 guy on their board. I don't know if he was, um, you know, even in the top 50 or so, but I'm pretty sure they were down on him quite a bit. And, you know, but he was the type of guy who it seemed like we might take, oh, here he's 91 on their board. I pulled it up now. So Floyd would have been 91. And, and yet he would have been this power conference guy who just struck out 17 in the college world series a couple weeks ago. And, you know, he has a fastball that plays up that excites people. Um, and Dana didn't do that. 
he didn't hide behind a player who he could have said, hey, everybody thought he should be a, a pick here. You know, the industry was aligned behind this guy. He took guys where people are going to say, hey, this was an overdraft by 25 picks based on the consensus, so that he gets a chance to show, I believe in my process. I believe in my eye for prospects. I believe in, you know, and, and I know last night, it's not something that we focus on, but Matthews did say in his interview that when he met Dana Brown at the Combine, all the questions were about his life and his sort of personality and his background. So Dana has not been shy in saying that his feel for a guy's makeup is important to him. And if he sees something there in Matthews that leads him to believe he's going to be closer to the ceiling of his projection than the floor, and that's the special sauce that he's selling here, right? Then good. I, I, I'm, I'm willing to say the metrics are good. The GM is saying that I know how to feel out who's going to live up to what the metrics say. Let's go for it. Um, last thoughts from you on this. I do want to get to our interview with Evan here uh, momentarily. Yeah, uh, I'm generally extremely skeptical and honestly just more critical of the you know, drafting the person, not the player approach. And and that has nothing to do with the, you know my lack of consideration to who the person is. I think being a good person, being a hardworking person, being humble, that stuff all matters. I mean, you as a brief anecdote, George Springer grew up with a stutter, drafted with a 35% K rate or some K rate that, you know, um, that seemed unattainable. And a big chunk of Evan's book was, you know, can George Springer succeed in the big leagues with that K rate? And, you know, I think Ben Ryder talked about it a lot in Astro Ball that, George Springer's ability to overcome his stutter took an incredible growth mindset. Um, one that, you know, has to have, has to pay dividends on the baseball field in some regards. And Springer was able to really work and become a, an exceptional baseball player with, you know, not too much of a strikeout issue. Um, and so I just think it speaks volumes when you learn about guys off the field like Springer and what he was able to overcome, you know, it definitely bodes well for his on the field production. So I'm not, minimizing that in the slightest i'm more just saying that you know if you were to com compile a list of the top 10 most talented baseball players and a list of the top 10 you know most hard-working baseball players i mean from what i'm told Martin maldonado would top that list and you know we we see that we see the production there but um you know jokes aside i think you mean the ring put, aiden you mean that you mean the shiny yeah. ring the produced ring yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly that, that he led the organization to but yeah you put those lists next to each other and i don't think they're too close in in who actually produces more value in baseball so i'm not saying you draft a guy who's just a you know a bad person and you don't necessarily want in your organization but you know at a certain point you are kind of drafting the player you are asking for on-field production you do pay money to the guys who give you the most on-field production most of the time so not saying none of that matters but it's generally an approach i'm skeptical of but the end of the day if it lands me a uh, athletic middle infielder with power and you know someone who's seems like his floor is just an athlete in the middle of the diamond who um has pop sign me up any day so um the approach is the approach we'll see how it pans out in the long run maybe over today and tomorrow as the draft unfolds but overall really really happy with how it happened um and yeah i'm excited i think you know Briefly, might be worth touching on, do you think this has any impact on whether the Astros decide to either extend Pena long-term or re-sign Altuve or Bregman in two years? Because 
all of those three are Astros for the next five, ten years, it's fair to wonder where Bryce Matthews would play if he does make it. Yeah, I mean, boy, we could do a whole show on Bregman here because the, the metrics on Bregman are fairly ominous uh, about the that he just got old fast. Um, but Pena, I feel like, look, you've got four more years of team control after this one. I think you're going to have, even if you want to extend him with two years of team control left, right? You're going to have two full seasons of data on whatever you think Bryce Matthews is going to be and still have a couple more years left of control on Pena. Bregman's the interesting guy there to me. I mean, Altuve, I think, is going to stay regardless. I mean, he's going to try to get his 3,000 hits here. They're going to they're going to go into the negotiation, I think, with the idea they're trying to find a number on Altuve that everybody can stomach as, like, a fair number. But I don't think it's a traditional negotiation where he's really considering how he would maximize his market and tempted to leave. So I think that's a different category of extension. Um, but Bregman is worth thinking about. I do think it's possible that if Bryce Matthews shows well here, you know, even Drew Gilbert last year in like eight games before he ran to the wall and got hurt, looked like a guy who belonged in pro ball. You know, his great debut. If they even get three or four good weeks of data on Bryce Matthews, where his you know his his walk rate and his strikeout rate are good, his power's playing at the pro level, right? I mean, he's hitting the ball with the wood bat over the fence, and they feel good about things. Yeah, I could see it causing them to be ten percent less needy in their negotiations with Bregman, where they feel like you know what. Worst case scenario, this guy can come up and play third for us, or if Pena ages off short down the road and we move him to third, we think Bryce might be able to slot in at short. Um, So yeah, I mean, there perhaps, but also he could end up in center field, and you always can fit, even if you have good outfielders, you always can fit a guy who's got a glove that can play anywhere in the outfield, you know, so if if he's going to be an elite outfielder, I don't think it matters much. Um, you know, they'll have room for him regardless, but yeah, Bregman's its own segment. Um, all right. I, I want to, you know, you mentioned Evan Drellick's book and, and a lot of the talk about Springer. Um, I want to bring him in, not so much to talk about the Astros, of course. So, you know, that concludes the part of this show that is about the modern Astros, but we do want to talk to Evan a little bit about the process behind his book. Um, and winning fixes. Everything is not a huge hit with Astros fans. Um, because obviously Astros fans view it as throwing more gas on the fire of a scandal that is unfairly targeting our team and that Evan Drellick was part of breaking when Mike Fires came to him. But it's a fascinating book. It's a great book. And it looks really at how modern baseball teams are built, which gets right into what we've been talking about here with the draft. So uh, we're going to bring Evan Drellick in now. And Evan, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Mission Control Podcast. Uh, we're going to be joined here in a second by Evan Drellick, author of Winner, Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Baseball's uh, Biggest Mess. And uh, the book's been out now for about four, four and a half months. Um, and certainly Astros fans have a very different reaction to it than baseball fans um, more broadly. What was your takeaway from it, Aiden? You know, this will be something that we're uh, going to talk about with Evan, you know, pretty much right off the off the bat. But, you know, I think to most people, this book seems to be, you know, more just a general um, 
story on the Astros cheating scandal. And, you know, while that isn't false, I think there are much more, you know, greater themes that we're looking forward to discussing with, you know, Evan today. So I think we're really excited to, you know, hear his perspective and, you know, dig into any more info he might have on, you know, what went on and, you know, how it pertains to the Astros and more. Absolutely. I think Evan is joining us now. Evan, can you hear me all right? Michael Mitchell with Aiden Resnick. I got you guys. You, you hear me? I do hear you. And That's a big victory if that works. I remember from your time in Houston, Ev, that uh, you're a Killers guy, right? You're a fan of the Killers. So I, yeah, I, I, the, I assume the posters are visible in the shot here. Yeah, I've no, I've, I, I've, I position myself behind. I have my Brandon Flowers, uh, Samstown era uh, behind me here tonight. So it's good. Now, yeah, um, the I'm trying to which which shoulder the Killers poster there. Killers poster there. There are others. I'm not going to point every one of them out to you, but yeah. They were at the awesome. Toyota Center for Mother's Day uh, last month. It was a really good show. Well, that was the third time that show got rescheduled or, or third it, or canceled twice. Yeah, they gave away a third time's the charm, like interlocking horseshoe poster to all of us who were there that night. So it's the little things. I'm on the Reddit, uh, so. I want to give you a chance here, um, and we've got a few questions for you, obviously, uh, about the okay. book. Uh, we were just introducing it a minute ago, but it's been four or five months now that it's been out. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the sense of how the baseball world, through your eyes, has responded to the book? You know, what feedback have you gotten? You don't have to name names, obviously, but just the temperature of the room towards towards the book. You know, I, I don't know if people are scared of me and, and therefore we should kind of take this with a grain of salt, but the direct responses I got angry Twitter fans aside, meaning people in the industry uh, who, who either lived this era in Houston or outside of Houston, were all very positive. I and mean, one of the more recent ones, I guess not that recent anymore, but kind of later in, in, in the responses that I got from people, it was from a major league general manager who, who, you know, said, look, I finally got around to reading the book and, um, you know, just commended the work. And, and it's, it's, it's meaningful to me if anybody reads it, learns something, enjoys it. I think there's a special or different sense of satisfaction or, or appreciation for when it's somebody who, you know, is on the inside in some way and who, who, who is very close to, it, if not what happened in Houston, then what was going on in the sport overall. You know, and, and, and it, the people who, who know the inner workings of front offices and um, and baseball the best to hear from them, you know, that that's it's all rewarding. It, and I'm not even trying to necessarily elevate one, but I think I think it's a it's a different type of rewarding. You know, it's it's, it's a validation. Yeah, that, that sounds great. That, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'd imagine it was a pretty rewarding process. You know, I, you know, as an Astros fan, also really enjoyed the book. I don't think, you know, every team has or every fan base has the opportunity to really get a, you know, a deep dive into what the team, you know, went through, you know, both the good and the bad in, you know, a very, I guess, controversial era. And so, you know, having that uh, experience was definitely, you know, one that I, you know, I'll value for a long time. Um, you know, I guess, you know, for, for our first question, you know, I wanted to more go into what the book is, you know, actually about. And what I mean by that is, you know, to some people, your book may seem to just, you know, be a deep dive into, you know, the Astros cheating scandal. 
And, you know, it is that to some extent, but the implications of, you know, the culture the Astros constructed go much deeper than that. You know, specifically, I remember you described it as what happens when corporate America meets America's pastime. Um, so, and, I, you know, I thought that quote was really cool. And I was wondering if you could, you know, explain the significance of that intersection and how it can affect or even has affected baseball beyond just the realm of a cheating scandal, you know, which seems to be more of an extreme outcome. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not trying to kind of piggyback off of the success of Moneyball, but I do think my book, as some others have kind of tried to, is, is really chronicling what came after Moneyball. What was the outgrowth of the introduction of this push for efficiency? And that really is the story of the Astros as, as well as the sport on a whole. And I think the line I've used with, with a lot of interviews and, and whatever, or just even in conversation is, you know, it, it's, there's a baseball on the cover of the book, but it's really not a baseball book. It's a man. It is a management culture book. It is uh, explaining how a front office specific one specific front office, but the, you know, they're, they're parallels to others works and kind of what really goes on behind the scenes with a baseball team and, and a very successful baseball team. And I, I think what, what was very, you know, still stands out to me is how different what happens behind the scenes is compared to what you hear about uh, and, and how they, they can really be at odds sometimes. I mean, the, the amount of conflict and chaos that can exist uh, in a management team, uh, all the while you're having this, this, the bottom line result that they are striving for and that fans want, they're making money, you're winning baseball games. It's, you know, I, 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 there's something unsettling about that, frankly, that, that, you know, the reality uh, of what's kind of, you know, teeming underneath uh, can look so different. And yeah, I, it, 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 it's, it's a culture book. I, I, I think that's probably the right way to look at it. And um, it took a lot of time. <laughs> Took a lot of time. What I see from from Astros fans in particular, obviously, are somewhat hostile to the book. Um, you've gotten that on Twitter. Not all. I, you know, I can tell you Not here all. in Houston, it, it's pl plenty of people are reading it and plenty of people are interested. But, you know, I, I kind of compare it to this idea of the chicken McNugget, where most people who are fans of chicken nuggets at McDonald's like the taste of chicken nuggets. And they're not particularly interested in hearing about the factory farming and all of the ways in which McDonald's gets, you know, 100,000 nuggets being cooked simultaneously all across the world. And yeah. I think with the Astros, there's this sense now where there's almost an embarrassment about not just the cheating scandal. And, and we'll talk more later about how Jim Crane has sort of pivoted this thing in the past six months, very much away from sort of McKinsey at the bat. Um, and towards, you know, I want baseball men who played the game in my ear and in the meetings and all that. But, you know, there's this sense of I don't want to know how we won these rings or why we were winning 105 games every year for the last five full seasons. Um, I just want to celebrate the diving catches and the hard hits. And, and you know, and, and some of that is about the cheating scandal, of course, because that's what people get shit from other fan bases about is trash cans. But I think a lot of it is just most fans are not fans of the factory farming. They're not fans of here's how we make this work. Here's why, you know, we're acquiring Colin McHugh because of the RPMs on his curveball. Like, I just want to see him pitch and hear about his wife. And, you know, so do you feel like there's some disconnect there where it's not primarily for fans? I think I think there's a lot of 
fans, a, a good number of fans who take that approach. I mean, I was talking to a, a writer friend the other day, and you know, this is somebody I've known a long time. We're not super close, but um, you know, the, the conversation for a long time was you know just about kind of what's going on in baseball, and they didn't, they themselves don't have much interest in the uh, off-field stuff, right? And, and I do. This is something kind of the dynamic you're talking about. I I encounter outside of the book as well, because, you know, I, I, my day job is, is covering the commissioner's office, covering the players union business of baseball, which can mean whatever you want it to mean. It's, it's often meant labor issues and the union stuff and the lockout and lawsuits and bankruptcy court with the RSN situation. It's, it's meant a bunch of different things, but none of it's on the field. And, and, and I even find sometimes, you know, I, I walked into city field yesterday um, and you know, it's, you get a little bit, oh, you're here, you're covering baseball. And it's like, look, I am covering baseball from a a different part of baseball than what is traditionally considered baseball coverage, right? I'm not writing often about what's on the field. And yeah, I think I think there are, you know, I've had the thought myself, would it, would it be better for me or, or wouldn't have been, would it have been nice if I had kind of uh, never investigated the chicken nuggets, uh, the chicken McNugget, and just, you know, kind of enjoyed enjoyed it from afar and you know there are times i mean we were talking about this the killers and read my mind is my favorite song um you know and i and i've sat there and i thought well should i have gone and been a music writer would i, would I you know I, because i feel more passionate sometimes about reading about music and reading about the killers and these bands that i like sometimes than i do about baseball and you know but i think that's a function of well look you get under the hood of any industry and I'm sure the music industry would be a great example of this. You know, there's a lot of ugly in a lot of places. So I don't blame people who, who don't have an interest in, in understanding the nugget. You know, it's a little bit of a blue pill, red pill. And if you don't want the red pill, all right. You know, I, I, I can't force people to it. I do think personally that these behind the scenes levers of power you know, they're really compelling. I mean, we've kind of reached an understanding with on the field stuff that look, a lot of it's random, you know, I, 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 I just, I find a lot of the off the field stuff to be in some ways, sometimes more compelling than the, the latest guy changing his slider grip. No offense to sliders and pitchers who, who grip them, but doesn't always pique my interest anymore. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, I think it's definitely you have sort of a, a mixed bag of fans who, you know, respond differently to one, what the book covers, but two, you know, how these, you know, organizations are run, you know, even beyond what the book covers. And, you know, I noticed that uh, a big theme underscoring your book and sort of, you know, speaking to the fact that you would, you know, describe it as a book more about management culture than about baseball, you know, is the effect of big egos and clashing personalities on on clubhouse culture, you know, it's a, an effect that's rarely visible uh, to fans without such an, you know, inside look at an organization. Um, but, you know, makes you wonder sort of what else is going on out there, you know, whether it's between Hinch and Cora, Porter and Luno, Luno and Scouts, you know, or even others, you know, there always seemed to be some sort of internal conflict within the organization. Um, and so I was wondering, did you, did you find that um, the Astros culture sort of underwent more turbulence than that of other teams? And, you know, if so, um, would you say that the fact that, you know, the Astros were still able to form a dynasty, you know, in spite of, you know, their, 
you know, potentially tumultuous culture diminish the uh, importance of chemistry and human relations, at least with respect to baseball operations, sort of, you know, playing along with this winning fixes everything uh, mindset? Yeah, chemistry is a complicated discussion. It, it's hard for me to say, look, I, I don't know, in the same time period we're talking about, 15, 16, 17, 18, I don't know the dynamics inside every single clubhouse. I would wager, um, no, I, I well, look, the, the, the incident of Alex Cora blowing up at Hinch on the bus and blowing up at Jeff Blum, that's pretty extreme and I think extraordinary. Th th these things do happen. You know, guys can get in each other's face. I think even that that this incident in particular was a little it wasn't just once it was twice it's in front of the whole team you know really aggressive um I don't think every team has that happen inside a season maybe a smaller tussle you know one guy gets another guy's face there's 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 so much we in the public fans media we never hear about um you know and I was talking to some writers the other day about Buck Showalter and it's actually it was a different podcast and if we had had more time i would have kind of gotten to the point of like look i i think when it comes to, to like fan and media evaluation of managers nobody actually knows the dynamic you know what 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 player are you going to walk up to that's on the record going to rip a manager it's never going to happen outside of really rare circumstances like dustin pedroia with bobby valentine in 2012 it's just you know, and so to really understand what how managers are doing, it takes a lot of talking to people and people have to trust you and want to talk to you about it. Because um, otherwise, it's team is winning, so they must be good. But, you know, I, my, my instinct about the question of, so how does, you know, is it all the more remarkable that they were successful, if I'm taking the question right, amidst this kind of chaos? Um, yeah, I think on one hand it is. Um, because, you know, sometimes teams are successful and things do run more smoothly. I also think in general, the way sports and narratives work, period, you know, if you win, they're going to write all these wonderful things. But I, I, think, I think the reality is there's always some shades of gray and some dysfunction that just doesn't get trumpeted or talked about. It, 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 you know, it's, it's not really the way sports narratives work. Um, that's my, my instinct, right? Like, like, like you know, let, let's not be too precious about it and, and think that, you know, everywhere else is peaches and ponies. And, but, uh, these were particularly rotten peaches and, 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 uh, difficult to wrangle ponies. Do you sense just to follow up on that? Because you talk about in the book in 2017, you know, Jeff's got McKinsey in the building. He's, he's auditing everything. And, and there's a fair amount of tension right are the players siloed off from that you know other than the you know cora blum stuff and the, that's obviously right in front of their faces you know yeah. is there sort of a two track parallel going on or is everybody sort of in the same bathwater with each other you know no i i, th I think it's probably the, the simplest way to think about it is is you know two different tracks but th there's crossover there you know that um Hinch gets annoyed by McKinsey. McKinsey does want some time from him, from some of the coaches. Is it a lot of time? No, but it's an annoyance, right? It, it and um, you know, the front office, particularly in arbitration, deals with the players and it deals with them and and asking them to use 
new wearable technology or whatever else they're, you know, innovative thing that they're trying to work with the front office dealing with the coaching staff. So yeah, I mean, look on a day-to-day basis, the players are in their, their world. They're in their clubhouse front office. People might walk through, might not, you know, it, it just depends on the front office, depends on the organization. Some GMs, um, travel on the road. Some, most of these days don't go to every road series. Um, there might only be one who still who does that by habit. Um, so it's not as simple as they're in totally separate worlds. And there's, there's depending on the initiative or the, or kind of the topic, there can be more crossover, but yeah, by and large, you know, uh, uh, Mike fast and Jeff Luno being at odds isn't directly something that like George Springer would have encountered or dealt with. He might've seen the result of it in some way, like based on an initiative, the team decides to do or not do, but no, they're not, you know, Mike and Jeff aren't arguing in the clubhouse. If that, you know, if that answers the question. Yeah, that definitely does. And, you know, it's interesting to learn about the dynamic between uh, players and, you know, the front office. Um, I do want to take a step back a little bit and, you know, hear your perspective on, you know, what specifically within the Astros organization you would attribute the cheating scheme to, you know, much of the book explains the Astros data driven approach and, you know, paints them as somewhat of pioneers in that regard. Um, and, you know, there obviously is a lot of merit to it, to that, you know, perspective, but there, there has to be more, a more specific root cause um, of the cheating scheme than just their data driven approach, you know, potentially a root cause that actually links, you know, what went on with their sign stealing scheme um, to, you know, their actual data driven approach. Um, and so I was wondering if there was, you know, a way that you could summarize just you know, how those things are linked or whether those things are actually just, you know, causal, causally related. Well, the, the, the continuous push for every little edge, which is not exclusive to analytics um, or team usage of analytics, uh, players feel that way too. But it was certainly the, the underlying sentiment that, uh, people felt explicitly and implicitly all the time is you've got to keep being better. We've got, you know, edge, edge, edge out through the competition, out through the competition. And it was very bottom line driven. They didn't care a lot about or spend a lot of time on anything besides how do we get to these results, the wins and by extension, the money. Um, so no, I, I don't think it's as direct as saying because we like to use better or newer information, uh, we were going to end up cheating. It's, it's, well, why were you so hungry for all this information? Because you, you really, you really, really want to win. Um, and how does that drive to win take a hold overall in your culture? And we look as a society, we reward and talk about that drive to win often in, in, you know, very glowing ways, you know, it's, oh, there's, you know, they're so focused and driven, and, you know, and, and, and I think the book is a bit of a study of, of, of what can come along with some of that. And, you know, 90, maybe it's literally 99 point something percent of the time you could, you would have a, a bad culture or, or a troubled culture, um, that doesn't produce, uh, this blow up. You know, you, you, and, and, and I've, I've said this at different points in the past, what's kind of troubling for me, you know, is, is 
So let's say let's say everything else happens, but sign stealing never happens. Does anybody care? And, and, and so in a weird way, the sign stealing is an entree to be like, oh, hey, there was some really screwed up stuff going on in here. But people are very result driven. You know, and, and it's the title of the book. You know, you win. You know, does anybody does anybody care about the McNugget? Right. I mean, I mean it's really kind of the, the question the book is posing. Does anybody give a crap at the at the end? That Jay Edmondson just got screwed, right? There's nothing wrong. I did everything he was asked to do. He just let his ass go, right? And that's and that's you could say that's life, that's America, um. But that I mean that's that's I, I'm I'm off of now the 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 original question of, of the relation between analytics and and the cheating, but it it, it has to do with uh, how how the drive to win was expressed. I think in some ways, too, that you talk about the drive to win and the searching for edges. I kind of look at the cheating scandal as getting Al Capone on tax evasion a little bit. And the reason I say that is you could. there were things that you wrote about in the book that have Jeff's fingerprints on them that are more morally damning of the front office. You know, whether sure. it be trying to drug test John Singleton illegally to shave some money off of his contract extension, his long term deal, whether it's you know, trying to get Springer away from his agent under false pretenses to get him to sign that type of deal, right? Whether it's Jason Castro and, and going extremely hard at him in arbitration, you know, obviously Brandon Taubman telling Allison Footer, you know, basically laughing in her face because Osuna put up three wins above replacement, you know? Um, and so who cares about domestic violence? And those are the things that are clearly linked to the culture of the front office. There's an argument to me, and I want to get your thought on this, the, the cheating scandal with the trash cans and the, the sign stealing, you have to look at Cora and Beltron as sort of the ultimate insiders in a lot. They are baseball men. They are respected players, ex-players. They are wise sages of the inside culture of baseball who are also looking for every little edge and paranoid about what other teams are doing that they're not doing. And I'm sure Jeff had, and we can get into that, it would take forever. I'm sure he had some knowledge of what was going on. He might have even directly approved and encouraged it. But it doesn't flow as naturally from his culture and his office as some of the other really problematic stuff. And yet it's the thing that gets him blacklisted, excuse me, from the sport. So I just want to get your thoughts on that a little yeah, bit. I, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think... I, you know, I start that sign stealing chapter when we finally get to the Astros are now cheating, right? So, which I don't know, but it, you know, we're, we're pretty deep in the book at that point. Um, the, the 2017 chapter it begins. I don't know that the Astros are the team most likely to start cheating. I do think they were the team most unlikely to stop cheating, and 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 so that is where I do see the cultural and you know, front office responsibility of what is the environment you produced. Um, is it one where there is enough strong communication and trust between a the players and management, whether that be the you know, front office to players and whatever interactions there are, or even with you and your own manager, right? Jeff Luna to AJ Hinge. Uh, you can imagine another environment where some team goes to the length, and there are quotes to this and to this effect in the book. You know, one uh, executive saying, you know, I. I I'd like to think I would be told about this, right? That somebody would, you know, if Jeff, Jeff Luna's whole claim has always been, I didn't know. Well, that doesn't actually reflect that well on you. That, that you, that if you didn't know, if that is true, that you didn't have these bridges of communication in, in place to stop it. 
and what is what was uh, what was always held up as the organizational ethos what what how should you behave um you know and so it, it, in a way it, you know it's 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 not about what they did focus on it's about everything they ignored and what, what you know the, the, these elements that Jim and uh Jeff just did not care to put any time into whether that's making sure women in the organization uh feel comfortable uh you know vis-a-vis Osuna you know it, it's the, the the countless examples of of them really only caring about two things wins and money uh you know i i think speak for themselves but yeah yes i i think i still take and, and i think agree with your point that um you know the 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 sign stealing scheme does have something of this bottom up element right it is not we have no evidence that jeff luno sat there and said you know what guys you should start cheating today right uh it did it did bubble up with players and staff and the environment allowed it to continue and grow and nobody stopped it. And that's an indictment of the culture. There are other things like you're pointing to that. Yeah. Um, you can look at it and go, that's, that's more directly, you know, it started here. It started closer, um, to Jeff, uh, or a front office person, but yeah, you know, I, 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 and this is, this is a line of questioning I had with, with people and it's in the book toward the end, you know, of, was this a reflection of culture? And I, although Jeff argues argue, uh, otherwise, you know, a lot of people there, prominent people there, felt strongly it was. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go back to you know something you said a little bit earlier about how you know you thought that the or you believe that the uh, you know motive the motivation to ultimately create you know a scheme like this and also you know their sort of, you know, Moneyball 2.0 kind of approach uh, is all, all stems from, you know, this idea that, you know, they really want to win and they really want to find, you know, any edge possible to achieve their, you know, their goals. As, you know, as a baseball fan and, you know, I'm sure Mike would agree with this. I'm, you know, we all grow up thinking, you know, oh, why wouldn't these teams want to win? You know, it's a, you know, it's a fun competition. You know, you'd like you know, you you're, you you sell more tickets when you put a winning product. You know, TV ratings are better. You know, there are a lot of things that come out of building a winning team. Um, so, you know, on the surface, you know, why wouldn't the Astros want to win? Like, you know, what about the Astros, you know, wouldn't want or wouldn't benefit from winning? Um, you know, but at the same time, I think, you know, a more inside look and maybe a more nuanced perspective uh, might realize or might, you know, find a difference between, you know, wanting to win, you know, really wanting to win and, you know, wanting to win so badly that, you know, you start cheating. Um, you know, there are all different degrees to it. And, you know, I think you see it in other forms of the sport, such as, you know, payroll and, you know, the disparities there and how incentives don't necessarily line up across organizations. Um, so can you talk a little bit about maybe even aside from the Astros, what you've noticed inside baseball about, you know, how incentives have changed or how they differ from organization to organization and how that may separate, you know, owners who want to win and owners who want to win maybe to a degree closer or even, you know, equal to the Astros yeah and 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 for the sake of being uh, stating the obvious but also being clear wanting to win is not in itself a bad thing it's it's what lengths are you willing to go to right what guardrails guardrails is a word I I, I think I use a couple times in the book or at least once and it, it I do think is operative right and that's you know that's what a leader in a culture does is um, it creates some boundaries and uh, you know and, and 
maybe a moral code that you instill to some degree or, or, or demonstrate for others. And the, you know, the Astros just didn't have that under, under, uh, in the Jim Jeff period. Um, uh, incentives. Well, look, my, my first thought on this goes more to my day job. Now. Um, one of the issues that came up in bargaining during the lockout is, you know, how, how much, uh, money teams can make without trying the, the, the prevalence of central revenues or, or kind of the, the growth of central revenues over time. So the national TV money, right. And, and there was a good column today. I thought it was a good column. It was today or day, maybe yesterday, uh, by Ann Killian at the San Francisco Chronicle, um, basically saying, you know, what John Fisher did with money, you know, 20 years after Moneyball, John Fisher took some of those principles and basically destroyed the A's with it. Um, but, you know, this is an example, right, of, of a team that's not out of business, is not trying at all, certainly this year, uh, was never known for ever really investing in the product. And, yeah, there is there is a stark difference between owners who want to make that effort or at least display the effort of, of spending the money on the roster and those who don't. And, and, you know, baseball is a sport, as we clearly see this year with the Mets and Padres, you don't, have, it, 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 there's a randomness to baseball. Um, small market or smaller market teams, teams that spend less, choose to spend less, as they say, uh, can't spend more because they don't open their books. I, you know, and, and without their books being open and then having like, a group of business people who we, we think are reasonable look at and go, you know, that would be an unreasonable expenditure. You know, all we have at this point is, is we have to take their word for it. Oh, we couldn't afford that. Well, every owner can choose how much they are comfortable making or losing on an operational basis in a given year. You know, Steve Cohen is losing money on an operational basis. The, 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 the Mets of 2023 will lose money whenever Steve Cohen or his descendants decide to sell the team. They will make also a lot of money, right? This is an investment that only goes up in value, and it's and, and sometimes you know multiple times over. Um, so my answer is like a lot of things that that I mean, ninety five percent of the stories, or maybe it's ninety nine percent of the stories I write these days, you could end it with it's about money, and it and it can be very disheartening. You know, you come to this, you love baseball, and then you kind of realize now nah, it's just everything's about money. But it is, right? You know, some owners like money uh, more such that they want to make more of it than the next owner. And, you know, somebody might be a little more comfortable spending more. And um, But this is going to be an ongoing, you know, get ready. Get ready for the 2026 lockout, right? Revenue disparity and... Uh, it's it's it, this this will be a long running conversation. We can talk a lot more about this. Last question here, Evan. I want to stay on the ownership level here for the last one. Um, you know, for the Astros fans who are going to be listening to this, um, the Astros have changed somewhat recently. Um, you know, initially after Jeff and AJ are fired, um, it seems like Jim Crane tries to find a less controversial version of Jeff with James Click out of a very progressive Tampa Bay front office, but a little bit more of a choir boy kind of personality relative to what had been going on. And now we see in the last six or seven months, Jim Crane shifting very much into the mode of, 
you know, I, I've learned enough about baseball that I can run the offseason myself with Jeff Bagwell and Reggie Jackson and, you know, Enos Cabell and then some people, you know, some of the analytics guys are still assistant GMs and they're there, but he's very much taking the lead. And then he does a GM search, right? And his GM search with Bagwell and Reggie sitting in on the interviews. And I know this isn't your beat anymore and, 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 you know, not directly in your purview, but it's almost all sort of the old school kind of, you know, GMs who are not from the progressive front offices or lifelong scouts who've been in the game. And he lands on Dana Brown, who had played at Seton Hall with Mo Vaughn and John Valentin and been a scout for 30 years. And so my question is, you were there here in Houston, 2013, 14, 15, and you wrote about this some in the book with the history of Crane and his business history and, and Jeff's history. Was Jim Crane ever really a fan of Moneyball as a, you know, analytics philosophy, or was he just a fan of making money? And he sort of told himself, you know, these nerds got me in a lot of trouble, right, Evan? Like they make me look like crap to my peers and it's embarrassing. And I'd rather just trust the kind of baseball guys that I want to play golf with. I'd, I'd, you know, we have enough success here. We're printing money. You know, they, they fill the ballpark. They've converted all the square footage into team stores. They're absolutely minting money down at Minute Maid right now. So maybe he's just arrogantly saying, I can be an owner who empowers people I actually like. And that's not the stat head type people. It's this very traditional people I trust because I golf with them kind of thing. So give me your sense of Jim Crane psychologically, the extent you can. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I can explain what I know of him and you can kind of make some speculative inferences from there. I mean, you know, the logistics world that he's coming from where he made all his money is very much a golfing buddy industry. You know, it, it's a, it, it is about relationships and, um, you know, Jim from the beginning, this is, this is in the book, you know, he's using the Astros to kind of drive business and, and look, there's nothing wrong with that inherently probably shouldn't be bringing people to the edge of the dugout during a game, but you know, you, you live and learn as a first time owner. Um, so yeah, look, is it possible that he, I, my instinctual answer is, is that, um, the money does matter to him and, and whoever's going to make him a lot of money is the guy he wants, whether he's a golfing buddy or not, you know, and, and he was always very willing to fire people. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of team presidents have, have kind of come and gone in, in his time there. Um, I, I think, I think it's reasonable to wonder if he's concerned about legacy, you know, does he buy the team as, as a, attempt to sport wash you know he had this really bad uh reputation uh still does but but uh you know with before owning the baseball team we were chronologically just in, as a matter of time we were closer to the discrimination charges and the war profiteering charges at his outside business um and he didn't own a baseball team at that point right and so you know has owning a baseball team somewhat made him more beloved. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, to the fans who don't care about the sausage, I, you would think so, right? The fans who just said, look, our team won. Yeah, right? I mean, that, that that's that's what the power of being a baseball owner is. And so I don't know. Is it is it certainly possible to think that, um, you know, he, he has certain people in his ear and he just, 
he wants to change the narrative around his team post cheating. Uh, so he decides to just hang on to some different types of personalities and different types of people, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it really is a question for A, for him or B, people or, and B, people around him. And C, you know, get Channel Roman. He might know. You know, it's somebody who's, who's more day to day around it because um, it, it is me guessing from afar. Yeah, and we'll have Chandler this weekend, but I worry about Chandler being able to speak too honestly about what's going on inside the building. As you know, beat writers, even if they don't work for the team, um, are a little bit kept under the thumb of Crane when he feels like he doesn't like something that's out there. I know you had that experience back in 2014. Yeah, look, I think, Sham, you know, it, it's a unique position he was in at the Chronicle Um well, it's two outlets, right? The Chronicle and the Athletic are really the two that cover the team um, and are not team-owned. And, you know, that, yeah, they, they, they will press you. But, I, you know, I, I don't see every tweet or story of Chandler's, but I, I think Chandler's been – he's done a really good job of, of kind of not letting it uh, – you know, if he sees something that's off or, or ridiculous, he'll point it out. And I think that's what reporters should do. It, you know, the world oh, – yeah, there's of, nothing against Chandler. Oh yeah, Sorry, no, no, no. I was gonna no, say, I'm and I'm 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 just you know I'm I'm I'm, look, he's a friend and I and I I was he was an intern when I was at the Chronicle, so I, I saw I was there his first year there, so he's, you know, um, but yeah, I mean to your general point, no teams like to control the narrative and they don't like people who don't do exactly what they want to do and you know some local TV people do exactly what teams want to do, not every local TV person, but some, um. And sometimes it's not even just TV, you know, it's, so it's, it's, it can be tricky. It can be tricky reporting on big businesses and, and sports teams. Well, Evan, thank you for joining us. And by the way, I thought you'd just get a kick out of it. You saw that we have signed John Singleton back down here, right? Jeff Luno is dead and John Singleton is alive in, in, in the Houston Astros organization. Because uh, yeah. he's back in AAA Sugarland here. <laughs> So, yeah, um, no, no, no. Uh, I had people reach out to me and I reached out to people upon seeing that. And, um, you know, one response I got back is time is a flat circle. I mean, it's, it is bizarre. <laughs> it is bizarre. Well, thank you so much, Evan. It was a philosophical discussion, but it got to a lot of the, the truth of what's really going on in the air and baseball. Uh, and we need that. So thank you so much. No, yeah, thanks thank for you, having Evan. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Should I, I take jump care. out? I'll Absolutely. Jump out. Yep. Thank you, sir. All right, I'm going to do a cut here and I'll trim it.